Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome to episode 189 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Mark McEvely and Matt Jessup bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. This week, as viewers may be able to see on our YouTube channel, it's uh, y- you have neither Mark nor Matt. They're both <laughs> preoccupied with, with work events. So filling in, you have myself, Nick Whitaker, Director of Research at Jessup Wealth Management, and one of our favorite and most esteemed members of, of, uh, of Just Wealth Management, Aaron Kramer. So, Thanks for that lovely intro, Nick. That was great. <laughs> Appreciate that. I really, uh, I really like to drone on. You really on, sold so it. They're <laughs> really selling it. So this will be good. As, as everyone knows, we start off with a little bit of pricing. Um, this data is from Ycharts. So the S&P 500 month to date is down 2.1%. Year to date, it's up 3.9%. The Dow Jones Industrial Average month to date is down 3.1%. And year to date, down 0.3%. The NASDAQ Composite is down 0.7% month to date and up 9.9% year to date. The iShares Russell 2000 ETF, think small caps, is down 1.8% month to date and up 7.8% year to date. And the Vanguard FTSE All World XUS ETF is down 3.4% month to date and up 5.0% year to date. Checking in on the Treasury markets, three month Treasury rate is currently sitting at 4.84%, the two year rate is at 4.66%, and the 10 year Treasury rate is at 3.93%. So a little bit of movement in the Treasury markets, but we are still inverted. Uh, on the short end of the curve, mm-hmm. uh, no surprise there. Um, jumping right into the big headlines and the current events, um, I'm just going to do a quick one for for listeners, and um, it's a little bit of Fed speak, which has been dominating dominating some of the the narrative of the market as of late. St. Louis Fed President Bullard, he's a non FOMC voter, FYI told CNBC earlier this week that the U.S. economy has been stronger than the Fed thought. And it would be, and he thinks that the market may be overpricing the risk of a recession in the second half of 2023. We're gonna, I'm gonna actually jump into it. I this. like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it, it very, could be good, could be bad, right. um, depending on how the market reacts. But we're, I'm actually gonna jump into this a little bit later in, in the podcast with some of my research. So Great. unless you have anything to add to that little bit of tidbit of news, we'll just no, jump right just into from the, the pricing standpoint, I, I liked it to see the more aggressive areas are, are leading the market. I think that's a, a good sign, my, in my opinion, and bodes well for hopefully this year, right? So um, that's if, that's exactly what I would want to see is the NASDAQ and small caps kind of leading the market. Small right? caps, even the VAX world or the XUS ETF, yeah, so the so all-world, which does have, uh, that is going to factor in big foreign national companies mm-hmm. as well, so it's not necessarily like an emerging market, it's not, they're not the same thing, but even still, having having some of that as well, I would say is positive. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. Well, um, if you're all right with it, I'll kind of jump right into tweets, articles, and research from this week, so I've got a, got a yeah. few good ones here. Take us away. All right, so the first one is gonna be a, an article um, from Kitsis.com. So Michael Kitsis is a, 
a, a blogger and a, and a financial planner, um, very smart guy. And this article is actually written on his blog by Benry Henry Moreland on uh, February 15th. And its title is Deathbed Drawdown of HSA. So I'm getting a little bit morbid here, but to start off the uh, podcast, but um, one thing to think about is when HSAs are funded, there's kind of two options that you have that, that this article talks about. It's you can fund it and use it as you go. Um, so if you have health expenses while you're young and they pop up, you can actually use that money to pay for health expenses, right? The second option is to contribute to that HSA and let it grow over time, right? So maybe you pay the smaller things out of pocket and if you don't have any major medical expenses, that HSA, if you max it out for several years, 10, 15, 20 years, it can get pretty substantial in size, mm -hmm. right? So um, the article talks about what are some of the kind of advantages and disadvantages of the um, HSA being kind of, let's call it overfunded. So the, the main reasons it could be advantageous to have a good chunk in HSA by the time you're 65 or retiring is because you can't contribute to it anymore once you're on Medicare, right? So hmm. the estimated health costs several years out in the future, it's estimated to be about 315000 for retirement health care expenses going forward in the future. So <laughs> it's kind of a, a crazy stat mm -hmm. that 15, 20 years in the future, it could be that expensive for health care expenses. But um, we, we've talked about inflation, but health care inflation has kind of been at an even faster mm -hmm. clip Right. So um, one thing to think about with HSAs is if you do have kind of let's call it a super funded HSA and you can't spend all the money, what, what do you do with it? Right. So there's several options when you pass money on to the next generation um, in an HSA. But a better option that the article talks about is the deathbed drawdown. Right. So um, essentially the deathbed drawdown is reimbursing yourself for healthcare expenses you've had your entire life. So essentially, if you can keep track of receipts, you can keep track of larger medical bills towards the end of your life, you can pretty much anything that you can justify with documentation, you can completely draw that HSA down, get that tax-free money out without paying penalties and passing it on to the next generation where it's not as tax advantage. So um, we have a couple charts here um, on the taxation of HSAs at death. So I'll just run through one here. Um, so essentially, if an HSA passes on to a beneficiary that is a spouse, it can remain in HSA. Okay. Um, and who is taxed? Nobody's taxed. And um, that, that's great. So if you pass your HSA on to a spouse, it's no problem. It stays tax advantaged. If you pass it on to a non-spouse that you're passing, it cannot remain in HSA. And the beneficiary is actually taxed on that money. So it um, loses its tax advantage status. And finally, if you pass it on to your estate with no beneficiary or anything like that, um, your final return, tax return, will pay um, taxes on that amount. So I think the theme here is you want to, I would say you want to fund an HSA, but you don't want to overfund it too much to where you're losing some of the, the advantages to um, essentially what it is, right, which is for healthcare expenses. So right. uh, the deathbed drawdown is a really good strategy. Say if you have 
fifty, a hundred thousand dollars in an HSA, which is certainly possible nowadays. Mm-hmm. They've been around long enough where people can actually start to grow them pretty, pretty Especially good if with investing. In, if they've been investing exactly. for ten years, exactly. Or so more. Yeah. yeah. So if it, let's say your HSA is funded or overfunded, um, make sure you're keeping track of all those receipts, all the medical bills that you have. I know it's a little bit easier nowadays with what's yeah. called my chart and all the things that you're paying. Gonna, I was going to say that. And for anyone who is, cause that's the first thing I thought of is, um, you know, the receipt tracking, I, I, I like an internal groan, yeah. uh, uh, you know, jumps to mind, but, um, I know in a few of the HSAs I've had in the past, just through different employers, the receipt tracking is a lot easier nowadays mm-hmm. with software. So for anyone who's listening who had that groan is like, I'm never yeah. going to track all my receipts for 20, Dou- 30 years. Right? Double check. And, and obviously you'll need to, to look at your own, your own HSA and, and the account and the software and everything. But I, I would venture a guess that it's a lot easier than, than you would think because with technology nowadays, the software is going to be doing your receipt tracking for you. It's just all the same place. Just need your username and your password. It should all be there. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's a great point. Um, other than that, um, any any other thoughts on the the HSA deathbed drawdown? I think it's a good strategy if you can come up with those that documentation. So it's better to use that money essentially while you're living rather than passing it on to yeah. a non qualified beneficiary is the main point. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me too. I mean, that's that's what it's for. And as you mentioned, health healthcare expenses um, in, in the United States are are not going away anytime yeah. soon. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to grow. So. Um, I feel like most people will be able to use them in their Without lifetime. Without over being um, overfunded, un- I would unfortunately 100% but, but, agree. But true. <laughs> yeah. So what, what else do you have? For All us? right, next one I have is an article um, by Ben Carlson. His um, I reference his stuff all the time. He's a great, great writer. Um, his article is called "Ongoing Stimulus in the Economy for Years to Come." And his blog is a wealth of common sense, and this was on February 20th, so just a few days ago. Um, so what this article says, I'm going to paraphrase it, essentially. I'll read a, a couple paragraphs out of it, but it's a bit lengthy, and I don't want to read the whole podcast. Um, so essentially what he's talking about is when he bought his first home and how low rates have been in, in mortgages, specifically for kind of pre-pandemic and pandemic mm-hmm. levels, right? Yeah. So... Um, he says, when, when we first purchased our new place in 2017, I think rates were around 4.5%. So um, he says it's a no-brainer to refinance at 3% during the pandemic when mortgage rates fell to the floor. Um, rates got so low, low during the pandemic that the m- monthly mortgage payment we now pay is roughly $150 more per month than we were paying on our very first payment back in 2007. Okay, so what he's talking about is when they bought their first home, 2007, 10 years later, they bought their upgraded home. Um, and he mentions this, that's despite the fact that the price of our new home was 150% higher than their first home. So that's really pretty crazy how... 150%. Yeah, wow. so I mean, it's more than doubled, mm-hmm. right? And the payment was $150 more. So um, he, said, he goes on to say, we didn't put a lot down on the first home and rolled all the equity from our previous home into the new house. We've paid down the mortgage as well. The taxes, insurance, and upkeep are obviously more expensive on our current home, but uh, this just goes to show how low mortgage rates got in 2020 and 2021. So um, he says, we were able to lock in extremely low fixed debt costs in our biggest monthly budget item, and we weren't alone. So 
Um, I really like these next couple stats that he, he's going to throw out here. Um, it's estimated one quarter of those who currently have a mortgage have rates of 3% or lower. And then two-thirds of those with mortgage debt are at 4% or lower. So this is, um, I really like that he makes this point because mortgage debt is the majority of household debt across the U.S. So, um, so I'm going to jump in just to yeah. make sure I heard that right. So you're saying, let's call it 65, 66, 66% have mortgage rates. 66% of home owners have mortgage rates sub five. Sub four. Sub four. Four percent or lower. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. It's pretty pretty shocking. So it makes sense his title of this mm. this article is stimulus for the economy to come. So it's I think years that's to come, yeah. 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 I not to I know we've seen inflation start to roll over and slow down mm. a bit, but I do think this is a, an ongoing factor um, that could lead to to longer longer term inflation um, and I think why the Fed has had to raise so aggressively mm -hmm. is because they realize things like this that mm -hmm. um, most people's biggest expense right is their home right and if you're sub four and you're in a reasonably priced home it's gonna be a lot more discretionary spending than say 10 years ago right or now if you're buying a home when rates are at six yeah. and a half seven percent right yeah a drastic amount of discretionary income right so hmm. I um, that's a really interesting it's point. It's a really interesting point. Yeah. So, and um, homeownership rate is currently hovering around 66% is what he says in the in the article. So, majority of people are are homeowners across the US and that's, um, I, I think the, the point he makes that it's a stimulus um, ongoing is, is very accurate. Um, it's, any other thoughts you have on it? I think it's a, I think it's a factor that maybe not everyone's considering with, um, inflation right now yeah i had i had not thought about that and i didn't know those numbers it's um yes yeah, makes a lot of sense um, especially with some of the generational shifts that i'm i'm trying to think through some of that too mm -hmm. with you know, maybe you have more boomers retiring and maybe going into smaller homes and then you right. have the millennials finally <laughs> starting to purchase homes right. and kind of leaving the suburbs a little bit. So yeah, I know I should say homeownership to the, the definitely a little bit. increased across COVID time Plus periods pandemic because pushing people, people into the that. suburbs, less yeah. renters, more, more buyers. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, and if, if people locked in rates under four, I mean, my rationale would be, why would you leave that? Right. It's tough to leave it. <laughs> so I don't, not everybody's going to have that same mentality, but. Tough uh, to leave it when you see what, what leaving it does to the bottom line. Yeah, it's a huge <laughs> hedge against inflation. And, and if you can be under yeah. three, four percent, that's pretty, pretty amazing. But um, yeah, I'm just curious how that's going to impact long term inflation and uh, the economy overall. Okay. We'll see. We that's shall. Um, all right, I got two more for you. These ones will be relatively quick here. So um, this is a tweet by Bespoke uh, Investments on February 22nd. And this is a chart of natural gas futures, uh, front month futures going back to 2000. And nat gas is currently sitting at just about its lowest level since, since COVID, the, the major sell-off there. So... Um, the tweet says, if someone showed you a 
the charts of oil and natural gas and gave you no other information on the state of the economy, where would inflation rank on your concern level? <laughs> so I think that's a, that's a pretty, uh, pretty interesting chart. Any thoughts before I kind of kick it off? Um, not, not too many right now. I've, I've not been reading as much on the energy space as of late just because yeah. of, of some of the pullback we've seen um, as of late. But these, these commodities, particularly nat gas, oil, this type of price action is, is, is normal. Yeah. Um, this type of volatility and these types of swings on a, you know, year couple month basis yeah yeah year to two year basis even a couple month basis or short-term mm -hmm. volatility but when you look at these this chart you kind of see big peaks and valleys about every two years now granted the one we saw recently is a little bit more mm -hmm. um noticeable and I, i'd say that's pretty normal for the commodity market especially yeah. that gas yeah my my only thoughts were is i i do think this is a positive thing for inflation um so kind of being flip-flop each side from the stimulus from mortgages yeah. being kind of a long-term potential negative for inflation. This is a short-term positive for inflation. So, I mean, having pretty much record warmth throughout the winter uh, drove prices down in that gas. There was yeah. just too much supply, essentially. So prices went from $10 a million BTU to $2 a million BTU, yeah. uh, which is a pretty drastic move in in since August, right? Yeah, um, it should help things. I think it'll definitely, definitely help things. If you, if you just think about energy prices, even your own home electric bill yeah. in the summer compared to where it's at now, it's, that's a, that's a definitely a driver to, to help people in inflation. And um, I think it's a, overall, I think it's a positive thing. Obviously not if you're a nat gas driller or producer, it's not great <laughs> for them, but for the long, there's overall a, economy i think it's probably a positive thing that, that there's a reason down. Some, there's a reason <laughs> some of those stocks have cooled off that's right <laughs> all right um last tweet i have here for you um again from bespoke i love their stuff as well they always have really really excellent charts so um this is a chart on um 221 february 21st on the existing home sales uh, and it's a pretty dramatic drop in existing home sales. This chart goes back to 2000 and um, the year over year change in existing home sales is, correct me if I'm wrong, looks like 70% approximately. It's substantial. <laughs> it's big. <laughs> yeah, listeners will see the charts and it's, uh, it's dramatic. I, uh, mental math's not always my best, but. Um, it looks, looks about. 70, I can't see the exact hash marks, yeah. but yeah, 70%. Uh, pretty, pretty massive year-over-year -year change in um, existing home sales. Again, a lot of that's rates going up is slowing. Um, supply is pretty much at zero right now, basically. Yeah. And um, rates, I think, are forcing people to kind of stay put. Is, is my feeling. So yeah. again, this is, in my opinion, another positive thing for inflation. Um, yeah, housing market's probably not gonna be running up quite as much as it had the, the last two years. Mm -hmm. um, supply has dried up quite a bit. And um, overall, it's, I think the main point is just it's such a massive change. We haven't seen a change like this since the flip side of COVID or the flip side of coming out of 08. So it's a pretty, pretty dramatic shift. Any yeah. thoughts you have? 
I would say that this chart makes perfect sense following <laughs> what you previously talked yes. about and, yep. and what we talked a little bit about you know, thinking about the pandemic, thinking about historically low rates that were offered there for a couple year period, mm -hmm. generational shifts. Um, the chart, the chart makes sense. Um, kind of adds up. Yeah. It all kind of um, makes sense with the, the prior, prior things uh -huh. I mentioned. So, um, but a good I, chart nonetheless. Yes. I think it's a pretty, pretty dramatic shift. So again, curious to see kind of as we get more into peak home buying season is spring, early summer, seeing what, what this looks like existing home sales. Uh, and if this changes at all, uh, I hate to speculate, but my guess is it probably home sales probably increase a little bit would be my guess as people get into spring and summer. Um, but I don't yeah, know. It could be wrong. Is, yeah. Cause being we'll a year over year chart, I imagine this will kind of come back to that. N yeah. Normal range where you're having kind of more what we saw in the early two thousands. I would kind of chopping back and forth. Yeah. That would be my guess if I had yeah. to, if someone, <laughs> someone made me guess. Absolutely. Any other thoughts or questions on um, anything I talked about, or you good to go? Go with your topics. Yeah, I'm I'm good to go. That was all great stuff. I've got three for listeners. Um, I'm going to start off with credit card balances increasing. This is a research from a research piece from Compound Research yesterday, actually. And the line that I pulled is as follows. Credit card balances in the U.S. increased 15.2% over the last year, the biggest jump since the 2001 recession. So we've unintentionally themed a lot of this podcast yeah. and research. We didn't work around. on this together. We, we didn't work on this together <laughs> at all. This is just mere coincidence. But you know, jumping back into the consumer and thinking about their discretionary income, you know, they have more and maybe they're pushing those credit card balances. Not maybe, they are pushing those yeah. credit card balances a, a little bit more than we've seen in the past. This is another year over year percentage change chart. Um, I, I personally, I, I always look at those charts in, in a different lens and you know, it takes my, my brain. I like to see the raw data personally. It gives me a little bit uh, better understanding of the history, but this is a pretty notable jump. Um, makes sense with everything else we've talked about. So I, I guess I don't have too much more to say about it. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the only thing I'll say is the chart makes perfect sense. Uh, there was a lot of stimulus, the checks from the government coming out and a lot of people were paying down debt. Mortgages were again at all time lows, uh, excuse me, mortgage rates were at all times lows mm -hmm. in, in COVID. So, um, Inflation wasn't ripping, so it all makes sense that credit card rates are going up because Americans typically don't change their spending habits, um, even if things are more expensive. Um, and I think it makes sense that as discretionary income has probably fallen a little bit with inflation being higher, goods being more expensive, Americans are going to continue to do what they do and spend, which is not necessarily a bad thing as we are a 70% consumption-based economy. It's, 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 it's essential um, to our economy. But um, it's never a good thing to, I'd say, to see credit card rates increasing at, at this level. Um, you know, I honestly think it could be a factor of inflation um, being maybe being post-COVID, more people traveling, things mm -hmm. like that. That's not cheap, um, not especially if you look at airline prices and things like that right now. It's, um, again, a pretty, pretty elevated level. So yeah. I think a lot of it's a, a shift in demand from kind of 
maybe uh, goods to more service-based mm -hmm. things going forward that's maybe a bit more expensive that we haven't had during the last couple of years with COVID as yeah. well. So just kind of my two cents on it, but it's a great chart. I think it like, does fit well into our unintentional <laughs> theme here. Into our unintentional narrative that we are, we are painting. So for the next two pieces, I'm going to step away from the narrative. I'm going to get back more into the financial Alrighty. markets. Uh, so the, the next piece I have is talking about why some market participants are so bearish. This is a tweet from the Twitter profile. It's called Markets and Mayhem. Um, and this was from yesterday. And uh, just a disclosure, the Markets and Mayhem, they try to find these major charts. And you know, they, they have a little bit of a doomsday-ish take, I've noticed. <laughs> um, some good charts nonetheless, but just you know, disclosure there. Um, the, the, the quote they had is the following. Stocks could have room to drop further as the Fed's hiking cycle hasn't ended. And even the eventual pivot could lead to further losses as such an event often happens during times of economic and financial stress. And he has a really cool chart here. Uh, the title is The History Shows Stocks Have More Room to Fall. U.S. Stocks Never Bottomed Before the Fed Stopped Hiking. This is stuff that the market, the Fed hike cycle and looking at history and looking at the history of the, of the rate cycle in context of the financial, the, the broader financial markets moving, let's just use the S&P 500 as, as we, we normally do. Right. This is something that people watch really closely. Um, and this is one of the reasons that there are still a lot of top research shops out there that are somewhat bearish. You know, there are obviously people on both sides of the coin. Um, some people think that we've, we've seen a, a pretty big pullback over the past year and a half. Um, this is also a very convenient chart to throw out at this time <laughs> yeah. after such a strong start to the mm -hmm. year when really I, th I think a lot of the market from what, from the shows I'm listening to and a lot, a lot of the research I'm reading, it seems like people are looking for a reason not to buy. People are looking for a reason to, to just pause and, you know, uh, the, the whole wait and see approach. Right. Um, I'm not going to predict what's going to happen. I'm not going to say that, you know, this chart is going to completely depict what's going to happen and we're going to go lower. It, it's a good chart to show why some people quickly, just a quick look at why, why some participants are still very bearish. bearish. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it in theory makes sense. Um, I always take everything with a grain of salt, right? Um, I, I do think there could be continued volatility. I think that's likely. Yeah. And I think that this chart definitely points to that. Yeah. Um, but again, there's, there's always bears and <laughs> there's always bears. There's always bulls. Right. There um, always will be. That's right. So, um, I mean, historically the chronically bearish, let's call them are usually wrong <laughs> yep. is my, my feeling. So in the um, grand scheme of things, it, yes, yes, the, yes. The, the perpetual bears are, are mostly wrong most of the time, mm -hmm. but they get a lot of media attention when they are right. right? When they're right. <laughs> you know, yeah, the, they really like to, to uh, pound the table and yeah. let everyone know I'll, I'll make two more points and then we can, we can keep it moving here. Cause I know we have a financial planning topic to get to. Um, the, the two points would be, um, the question I still have about this chart is 
can we have a software session? If we have a software session, is that already priced in? I think that's that's what the market is trying yeah, to figure that's out. What's unknown. And you know the the rate cycle has obviously gone up pretty quickly. You can see that in the chart. And if we've already priced that in, then this could look different than some of the bears are, are mm -hmm. calling for. So that that's that's one of the points I'll make. And then Absolutely. the other point I'll make is this is a great chart. It's a really cool chart. But it doesn't show us a ton of history. It does not. I'd it's like 20, to see twenty-three it's, years. Yeah, it only it's it only not, goes back to two thousand. I'd like to see the eighties and nineties and, and things exactly. like that at a minimum. It makes me think this guy's probably <laughs> trying to make a point, and I wonder what it looks like going back long term. And, and maybe it's not as beautiful to this guy's point. Right. Um, so those are the two points I'll make. Is, Absolutely. You know, Think you, about can, you can pick the data that looks good sometimes. Exactly. And I, I kind of wonder if he cherry-picked this just a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure the general idea is, is I know the general idea is accurate um, to, to some degree, but it does look a little bit cherry-picked. Um, the last piece I have is checking in on profit margins since the pandemic. And this is a tweet from Liz Young. She's the head of investment strategy at SoFi. And she says the following, the S&P 500's profit margin has compressed by 3% per percentage points, but is still above pre-pandemic. Note sector dispersion. Energy margins 3x what they were in 2019, while financials and big tech-ish sectors taking it on the chin since the 2022 peak. We'll throw this uh, diagram, this chart table, uh, whatever you want to call it. We'll throw it up for listeners to look at so they can, they can see it, uh, what we're looking at. Um, and it's, it's a good chart. It, it shows what exactly what, what Liz pointed out, how the energy margins have, have really come up um, quite a bit since pre-pandemic. Um, but you can kind of see the, the dispersion across the sector and which sectors are holding up relatively stable, which ones are moving. Um, what one of the big takeaways is that that they've compressed by three percentage points general margins have but they're still above the pre-pandemic level i think that's that's a good thing obviously a, i think that's a great thing and i think you know let's let's talk about the bullish side of the narrative mm -hmm. that's very Absolutely. bullish right the, even the, as recession fears have loomed and it hasn't really compressed that much. Exactly. Um, and that's, and we've talked about it. I know Matt and Mark have talked about it in previous podcasts that there's going to be a lot of focus on profit margins over the past few quarters. And there will continue to be a lot of focus on profit margins while all the recession talk is looming, while we're trying to figure out, is it going to be a soft landing? Is it going to be a hard landing? When will the right. Fed cycle end? When are we going to reach the terminal level? Profit margins, operating margins, um, operating efficiency metrics, that stuff is going to be under scrutiny. Um, but to see that, that the big picture, we're still above the pre-pandemic yeah, levels. I think that, in, in is, my is, opinion, leads me more, if corporate profitability can remain, I think that leads me to believe that there's a better chance for a soft landing if this absolutely. hit, rather than have this hit crumbled, right? Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's you know, I had the bearish chart earlier. <laughs> had to balance it out for listeners um so i thought that was that was a good one absolutely no that's, a, that's um, an awesome chart do you have anything else you want to add to that before um i i sub out for taylor and she she takes us through the financial planning topic no i thought all of those i thought all your uh tweets were great 
bunch of good info there. It's uh, it's been fun to do the podcast with you. Absolutely. Well, thank you, listeners. It's good to uh, to do this again, and I'm gonna let let Taylor jump in here. All right. Welcome, Taylor. It's good to be back on the podcast. It's been a little bit. Yeah. Um, so today I'm going to be talking about estate tax. Just an overview. Not going to get too detailed. Um, so. Estate tax is a tax levied on a deceased person's assets, and this can range anywhere from 18% to 40%. Um, but this only applies to assets valued over $12.92 million. So that's the limit for 2023. Yeah, that's a pretty large number. <laughs> yeah, um, and because this exemption amount is so high, most people don't have to even worry about being charged a federal estate tax. So I think that's definitely a, a common misconception. Yes. Um, also, though, some states do also have estate taxes. So even if you qualify for that federal estate tax exemption, that $12.92 million, um, you still may not qualify at the state level. Yeah, that's so, a great point. That's a great point. And that's why I think sometimes you do see some estate planning techniques that can take advantage of maximizing all the exemptions, and um, especially with, not to get too technical here, A trusts and B trusts for, for married couples to maximize the, the estate tax exclusions. Um, especially on the state level. So I'm great. glad you brought that up. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, trusts are a great way to kind of shelter that tax. Mm -hmm. um, so estate taxes, they're also assessed on the current fair market value of the assets, not the original value when the asset was actually purchased. So, for example, like if you purchased a house for around $5 million, but its current market value was around $4 million instead, then that $4 million would be included in the estate, not the $5 million. Okay. Um, additionally, surviving spouses are not subject to any federal estate tax because of the unlimited marital deduction. Um, so that basically allows unlimited transfers to spouses completely free of tax. Right. That's, that's good. Um, now, going back to estate tax at the state level, there's actually only 12 states that do charge an estate tax. Um, so those include Connecticut, the District of Columbia, Hawaii, Illinois, Maine, Massachusetts, Maryland, New York, Oregon, Minnesota, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Washington State. So even though um, those state thresholds and rates may be different than at the federal level, um, there's only 12 states that really charge. Right, right. Yeah, so if, I mean, if listeners are in, in one of these states, it, it could be something to consider. But um, for the vast majority of people, um, estate taxes aren't a huge concern, right? Unless you are kind of what we call ultra high net worth, right? Exactly. Now, there's also a state inheritance tax, and this is charged to the heirs who are actually receiving the assets. Um, and depending on, you know, if you're an heir, your relationship with the decedent will determine the inheritance tax rate you might pay. 
So if you're a surviving spouse, you are typically exempt from any inheritance tax. Um, if you are a child of the decedent, you normally qualify for a lower inheritance tax rate. Um, and it's typically somebody who's actually unrelated to the decedent who is charged at higher. a higher level. Um, and this inheritance tax is only charged at the state level, not the federal. Um, and there's only six states that actually do charge this tax. So that includes Iowa, Kentucky, Maryland, Nebraska, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Um, and just like with the estate tax, an inheritance tax is only due if it exceeds that threshold or that, that annual limit. Yeah, and those states have different levels, correct? Exactly. Yeah. That's why you can be um, exempt at the federal level, but maybe not at the state level because every state is A little is bit different, different. yep. Mm -hmm. um, there is a couple ways you can minimize estate taxes. A couple really simple ones are just to stay below that threshold amount, which is pretty easy to do. Um, I don't see this too often, but sometimes people make their estate beneficiaries of a life insurance policy. Mm -hmm. So obviously you don't want to do that because then that value is going to be included in the estate. Um, and then you also mentioned this earlier, you know, placing assets in a trust just to shield from any tax. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the life insurance is a great thing to consider because if you, as, like you said, if you make the estate the beneficiary of the, the life insurance policy, it's going to be taxable to the estate if you're above the, the exemption or exclusion amount. If you make the beneficiaries essentially a person or a, a specific type of trust, it won't be a tax mm -hmm. that the it'll be essentially tax-free, which is huge. So um, I always encourage clients to make sure you're listing beneficiaries for life insurance, usually to a, a person, whether it's right. a spouse or children, something like that is typically the best route. Yeah, I don't really see much of a benefit listing the estate, the estate no, as not the at all. Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and the, uh, the trust can be a really powerful tool. So making things irrevocable, like you said, um, and keeping maybe a spouse's assets separate can allow essentially you to take advantage of that 12.92 million times two, exactly, right? So yeah. you can get that almost uh, over 25 million mm -hmm. now, right? So yeah. it does take some slightly involved estate planning, but if you're at that level, it's usually worth the expense and setting up the mm -hmm. trust and working with an estate planning attorney. So um, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I love, I love that um, topic today. Yeah, just a nice overview, not getting too into the weeds. Yeah, you could you could spend you could spend a month talking about the estate tax and how it's calculated and, and mm -hmm. what's excluded, what what's impacted in it as well. Because I know um, the lifetime gift exemption can be a factor, so yeah. it can get really complicated. But I, I love that mm -hmm. kind of high level overview. I think that's great. Yeah. All right. Anything else you want to add? Um, nope, I think that's it. All right. Well, uh, thank you, listeners, for listening to episode 189 of the Independent Advisors Podcast. Uh, we hope you all have a great rest of the week and weekend. 
Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.